0: You know, I appreciate Val Shira's singing in voice. I don't enjoy having to follow her when I stand up and preach. <laughs> I got to live up to it. We will live in the light of the risen Lamb. That is an idea that will stretch your mind. Oliver Wendell Holmes said these words A mind stretched by a new idea never returns to its original shape. A mind stretched by a new idea never returns to its original shape. And the resurrection was all about Jesus stretching our minds so that they would never return to their original shape. He used the resurrection to create that first Easter morning all kinds of questions. So that he could stretch people's minds so that they would never return to their original shape. But there's a key ingredient in how he did that. In the story we're going to look at this morning, Peter and John go to the empty tomb. And when they get there, they don't find him. They just find it empty with evidence that he has risen from the dead. He is stretching their minds. But there's an important decision they have to make. Peter makes it first, and then John makes it. And that is, they're not going to be satisfied just to hear about the resurrection. They're not going to be satisfied even to just stand outside the tomb and peer in and see what it's like. They go into the tomb, and they carefully examine the evidence of the resurrection. you got to go in. you got to go in and see what's happened you got to go in and smell what's happened. I'll talk about that in a few minutes. you got to go in and see what it means for Jesus to have risen from the dead. You can't stand on the outside and look at it. And if you want the full effects of the resurrection, you got to go in and see what it means for that tomb to be empty. Turn with me to John's Gospel, chapter 20. John's Gospel, chapter 20. The morning of the resurrection, no one was expecting a resurrection. We look forward to Easter Sunday. We prepare for Easter Sunday. We make all kinds of plans, etc. A lot of y'all got plans this afternoon to go be with family, eating a lot of food and all that kind of good stuff. That first resurrection morning, they got up. They got news the tomb was empty. They were not jumping up and down and all excited. It was dread. They thought the body had been stolen and robbed, etc. And so there was no expectation that Jesus was going to be raised from the dead. Jesus, however, is using all kinds of questions in the way he leaves that tomb to raise their curiosity, to compel them to go into that tomb. Now, back in those days when you had a dead body and you would bury it, the custom was to take the body and to wrap the body in linen. And then the head was wrapped separately in what we would call like a turban today. And then they would place the body into a cave, usually in a space in the wall of the cave, And then they would put spices all over the body because they didn't embalm bodies like we do today. And the body would begin to decompose. And if you've ever been around anything that's in a state of decomposition, it does not smell very good at all. And so the spices were there to wipe out the odor. And they would go back on the third day, as Mary Magdalene does in this story, for the purpose of putting additional spices on the body one last time. And that's where we're going to join the story in John's Gospel, chapter 20, beginning with verse 10. Now, on the first day of the week, which is our Sunday, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. And this was in what was called the fourth watch of the night. And that ran from three in the morning until six in the morning. And she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple. Now, John, who writes this book here, loves to write in the third person. So when he talks about the other disciple here, he's referring to himself. The disciple whom Jesus loved. And he said to them, "Excuse me, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter, and he reached the tomb first. Stooping to look in, Apparently, it was sort of a low entrance into that tomb. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen clothes lying there. And the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple... Who had reached the tomb first, that's John, also went in, and he saw and believed. Key term there, phrase, and he saw and believed. For as yet, they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Now my sermon is contained in your Rocky Mount connection. You given when you came in, I love for you, if you follow along, take some notes as we move through this together. What we see in this story is holy curiosity on display. Now think about it. John and Peter get a knock at the door probably around 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning. And Mary Magdalene is having a meltdown. You have got to come to the tomb. You've got to come to Jesus' tomb right now. They've taken the body. She did not come and say he's resurrected. She saw an empty grave, empty tomb. She wasn't expecting a resurrection. She didn't recognize a, resu- rec- a resign. Uh, i get the word out in a minute. A resurrection when she looked at it. I hate ours all backed up together. She didn't recognize it when she saw it. And so they take off running to the tomb. Again, they run expecting that what they're going to find when they get there is not a resurrection, but a grave robbery. Now we think John was the youngest of the disciples. So he outruns Peter. He gets there, and he stops at the entrance to the tomb, and he sort of looks and peers in. Peter, as impetuous as ever, takes off, runs, and when he gets there, he just runs right on past John into that tomb, and he begins to inspect the evidence that's inside that tomb. He begins to look at those clothes that are there, and then John follows Peter into the tomb, and they begin to look. And notice the detail that we're given. They look at the linen that was wrapped around the body. Then they go over there, and they look at that napkin that's folded up nice and neat and laid on the side. Moms, let me give you something there. If you've ever had problems with your kids not wanting to keep their room clean, just point to how Jesus took care of the tomb, wrapping that... Uh, nice and neat and say, hey, he set an example about how you're supposed to keep your room. So just fold everything up and put it in its place. And so they look at that evidence of how it is there in that tomb, and the wheels start turning inside their minds. Now, what they're having here is what I call a 4D experience. So let me explain that. Years ago, our family went on, took a family vacation, and we went to Yorktown, Virginia. We were in the Hampton Roads area. And we went to the Museum of the American Revolution. Now, when I was growing up, museums were the type of places, they were very quiet, and they were sort of boring. Because you would go in there, and you would stand, and you would go up and down, and you would look at artifacts. Things that had been, you know, dug up and whatever. And they were there, and they had the plate glass, and you would look over them, and they had alarm systems so that if you got too close, or you touched something, an alarm system would go off, etc., I can vouch for that, my son got too close one day, to one of those deals, an alarm system went off, and we just sort of backed around and pretended like we didn't know what was going on, and what had happened, and all that kind of stuff, yeah, you know, if as a parent, you get good at that after a while, and anyway, so we, uh, we were going through there, but the Museum of the American Revolution is a relatively new museum, it's only been there probably about five or six years, and museums now are being Redone. The idea now is to have an experience with what you're looking at, not just to look at it, but to step into it. So we went into what's called the 4D theater, and we go in this theater, and I thought, what do they gonna mean by it being 4D? I've heard of 3D, but what do they mean by it being 4D? Well, we sat back, and they begin to tell the story of the Battle of Yorktown, and they begin with Valley Forge uh, that led eventually up to Yorktown. And they begin to draw you into it so you feel like you're a part of it. When you go to Valley Forge, uh, they literally turn the air conditioning down in the room so you begin to freeze along with the soldiers that you're seeing on the screen. When they begin to introduce the battle of Yorktown and the French fleet comes in to surround and attacks the British Navy and begins to to bombard the British forces there. You're sitting there and they begin to blow air, cold air, through the room so that you feel like you're literally out on the Atlantic Ocean. You can hear the waves in the background. Then they begin to fire the cannons. And as the cannons are firing, the floor under you begins to shake. And then they begin to spray water at you so that you've got to feel that you've got an ocean wave hitting you in the face. That's that 4D effect. You're watching it. You're feeling it. You're tasting it the whole bit. Uh, I mean, they just really create it. Then they take you to the battlefield itself, and every time a cannon goes off, the ground, literally the floor you're sitting on, begins to shake. And then they really start freaking you out because with all the guns firing and everything else, smoke starts coming up around you, and you think the theater's on fire, and it's the idea that where those cannonballs are hitting, the smoke is coming up, et cetera. But the idea is 4-D. You are not watching this. You are a part of this. In fact, after a while in the battle scene, you will start checking yourself for blood to make sure that you're bullet. Because when the, you know, they fire stuff, you can even feel you know, the air going beside you, et cetera, See, And they got the surround sound going on, and you just feel like you were pulled right into what's going on. We see what these guys are doing this morning at the resurrection of Jesus is they are not satisfied to hear from Mary Magdalene about what's happened in that tomb. They are not satisfied to go and to stand on the outside and look into the tomb they have got to go into the tomb. They've got to inspect it for themselves. They've got to see the evidence. Now, I want you to imagine this. John goes in there, and while he's in there, looking around, looking at the linen cloths, all in place, he recognizes this is not a grave robbery. Why in the world are robbers going to take a body smoothly out of the linen? You just pick the body up and head out the door as fast as you can. If they're trying to take off with Jesus, why do you fold stuff that linen turban and set it on the side and make it really nice? The evidence is pointing to resurrection about the way the linens are in there. Now, the Bible doesn't say this because it's hard to write In prose and talk about smell. But death has a putrid smell to it. You've been around anything that's been decomposing for a while. You know about it. You want to get away from it. A body that's been lying in a cave in Palestine. For pushing three days. In 90 plus degree heat. Is not going to smell pleasant. Even if they've stolen the body. It's not going to smell pleasant. Now, flip side of the coin is life, particularly new life, fresh life, smells good. We enjoy that. And have you ever noticed that certain people have, and I mean this in a positive sense, have certain characteristics when it comes to smell? I mean, you know they've been around if you get used to their smell. Now, I know some people can get used to their smell. It's not a pleasant experience. But I'm talking about this on the positive side. I was telling the folks this morning, I, uh, I got here, uh, and I was turning some lights on this morning, in another part of the building, and I walked in the fellowship hall, and I thought, Joe Barrett has got to be in the building because I can smell his cologne. And, uh, and sure enough, when I walked out the door and down the hall, Joe bumped right into me and said, Yeah, I knew Joe was here because I learned to recognize what his cologne smells like. I can always tell when Val is here. I walk in and I can tell, Val is here. I smell the perfume. Well, when John walked in <clears throat> to that tomb that morning, he didn't smell death, he smelled life. He smelled. The life of the Lord Jesus Christ. He'd been around Jesus for three and a half years. And what do you smell on that tomb that they told him? He's not dead, he is alive. He was having a 4D experience. And what was Jesus trying to teach him? He was trying to teach him you got to go in, you got to experience it, and you got to learn to live out of your imagination and the miraculous, not just your memories. John had had three and a half years of memories with Jesus, but this morning he had to live out of some imagination that there was the possibility that a resurrection had taken place, that there was the possibility that there was a miracle that had happened. And what the Lord wants us to do, and I believe one of the things he's trying to teach us in this, is to learn to realize that we can live out of imagination and the miraculous with Jesus because he's risen from the dead. That we can go into life expecting Him to show up and to show off. With what he accomplishes and what he does, because he is alive. That when we go on mission trips and out on mission fields, when we go into relationships and when we live daily in the world that all of us have got to live in on our jobs and our neighborhoods and our families, that we can expect more than what the devil is up to. We can expect more than what human beings are up to. That we can live in an expectation of what the Lord Jesus is up to and what he's going to do, and we can live in that hope looking and anticipating what Jesus is going to do and what he's going to accomplish and what he is accomplishing now when John walked in there that morning John saw the tomb was empty he saw how the grave clothes were laid all speaking of resurrection and that's where he found his hope that's where he found his hope you see, John got up that morning looking inside himself. And he didn't find much hope inside himself. He didn't find any hope inside himself. He didn't find any hope with Mary Magdalene. She's freaking out because she thought the body had been stolen. But as he stood there looking at the evidence, the evidence that Jesus had left behind, he started discovering that the tomb wasn't really empty. The tomb was filled with evidence, it was filled with hope. It was filled with the power of God. We live in a world today that tells us if you want to have hope, look inside yourself. If you want to have joy, look inside yourself. Just look inside yourself, and if you can just pull it up from inside yourself, you'll have what it takes. It's no wonder we live in a culture of such anger and hopelessness and discouragement and depression. Because we all looking inside ourselves. And what the Lord was trying to teach John that morning was don't look inside yourself. Look inside of me. Look inside of what I'm up to. Look inside of what I have accomplished. And if you and I will instead of looking inside of us for hope and for joy, and for peace, and a way forward. We'll look inside of Jesus and his activity. That's where the hope comes from, to move on. It's that curiosity that he's breathing into us, that holy curiosity that says, i got to go in, and i got to look for hope in Jesus. And he wants to grow that curiosity in you to find his hope that he's got for you. you got to go in. Now, notice what happens. Verse 8. It says, John saw and he believed. But then notice the next verse. It does not say that John saw and believed and then he ran through the streets of Jerusalem telling everybody Jesus rose from the dead. It doesn't say that he spent the rest of the day throwing a big party with the disciples to celebrate the resurrection. It doesn't even say that John went out of there trying to madly find where Jesus had gone. It says he saw and he believed, but then it says he, they didn't understand the scriptures yet. And then verse 10 really sort of throws a curveball into it. It says that he went home. That's not how you celebrate a, celebrate a resurrection. You go home. I don't even say he threw a party when he went home. Does he just went home? When you read that, it's like you're way up here, and then all of a sudden you're boom, way down here. Like, John, what is your problem? Why are you going home? You ought to be running around Jerusalem yelling about the resurrection, etc. Let me tell you why I think it says they didn't understand the Scriptures yet, and then they went home. Imagine faith. I want to illustrate faith this way. If I can get this thing to light right, I'm going to try to light this candle. And if it doesn't light, then I'll use the old fashioned type. There we go. I want you to look at that flame. That's a small flame, putting out a little bit of heat, but nonetheless a small flame, and it can be blown out easily. It is not a campfire type flame. It is certainly not a bonfire. Campfire takes more water to pour it out put it out in a bonfire. I mean you got about to have a hose in the whole 9 yards to get it out. Just a small flame there. John's faith inside that tomb that morning was like that flame. It was not campfire size. It was not bonfire size. It was just a flicker. It's interesting to me that Jesus that morning was not at the tomb when John and Peter got there to explain it all, tell them how the resurrection happened. Jesus could have been there at the front of the gate. Hey, come on in. Let me explain what's happened. So good to see you. He wasn't sitting inside the tomb. Hey, this is how I got out from underneath those linen cloths. That's why they're lying here. This happened about 4 o'clock in the morning, let me tell you. Hadn't it? Jesus wasn't even there. He had to start believing without Jesus physically being there. Why? I'm not so sure the reason for that is this. John had to start at the same place you and I have to start. Wouldn't it have been nice this morning if we could all have gotten up and turned on our iPhones or devices or TVs and Jesus in person in the physical body would have been in Jerusalem giving a news conference on the resurrection. That would have put the Super Bowl to shame with the ratings they would have gotten. But you see, we all start at the same place that John started. In an empty tomb, but his physical body is not there. And our faith starts Small. Like John's did. People struggle with faith and come to faith and walk in faith in different degrees and in different ways. Some people can believe easy. And other people struggle to believe. And faith is a really tough journey for them. And God understands that. And the Lord is patient with it. It says that John saw and believed, but then he went home. Why? Because he had to work through it and contemplate it and struggle with it. You see, faith doesn't grow with how hyperactive we can be about our faith or how much we can work up faith. Faith often is a struggle. Some of you I'm talking to today, maybe you believe easy. I envy you because faith for me has never been easy. I had struggles early on in my life with atheism. Did God even exist? And faith was a struggle. Sometimes it's still a struggle. There are times I see things happen in good people's lives that I don't understand. I don't understand where God is in the midst of it and why God didn't do things that I would have expected Him to do. And so faith is a struggle. Sometimes we feel like our faith is like this and all it takes is just Blowing on it one or twice or two by some experiences in life. And boom, the faith is gone. What did Jesus do with John's faith as he walked out of that tomb? Well, let me give you several things that he did. First thing Jesus did was he gave him evidence. As John walked out of there and he went home and he started thinking about it. You know, this doesn't look like a grave robbery. And Jesus talked about he was going to destroy the temple, which was his body, and in three days it would, come, it would come back. What was he trying to tell me? Because this isn't like a grave robbery. It doesn't look like one. It doesn't sound like one. That's The evidence is pointing to resurrection, even though that seems too good to be true. Jesus gave him evidence... And then for the next 40 days, Jesus started showing up over and over and over again. What was Jesus trying to do? Evidence on top of evidence on top of evidence. Multiple eyewitnesses. Second, it says they didn't understand the Scripture. But later that day, Jesus takes two of His disciples and He goes down the road to Emmaus and He spends hours explaining the Scriptures about His life and His resurrection. So he will use the Scriptures to mesh in with the evidence, which is the way he always works. Third, there were multiple experiences. As I said a minute ago, Jesus appears to them multiple times over 40 days. He knows that one time or two times isn't enough. They need multiple experiences with him. And he wants us to have experience after experience after experience with him. And then finally, Jesus looks at them, and he says towards the end of those 40 days, I want you to go to Jerusalem. I want you to pray there until I pour my power out on you. And in Acts chapter 1 and 2, he pours his power out. Now let me tell you what Jesus is doing. He starts with John in that tomb with that faith that is so small, so easy to get blown out and destroyed. And then he starts adding more evidence and more evidence, and the flame gets larger larger. And larger. For 40 days he teaches him, he's with him, fresh experiences and the flame gets stronger and stronger. And then at Pentecost, he pours like fuel on a fire, the Holy Spirit and the faith inside of John explodes out of John. And that's the way he works with us. Your faith, Most of your faith is not going to just explode like flipping the lights on in a room. It's going to start like that. It's going to struggle. Days ago you will think it's going to be blown out. But stay in the Word of God. Stay with Him. Have those fresh experiences with Him. And open your life to the power and presence and outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And you will watch Him grow your faith and develop your faith. The final truth I want us to see in this passage this morning is that Jesus loves to create questions. He loves to create questions. John walks out of there and he's got more questions than he's got answers. And John's got questions that Jesus has raised that only Jesus can answer. Folks, follow me on this. Jesus wants you to know Him, and Jesus wants you to serve Him, and Jesus wants you to be in a deep, growing relationship with Him. So how is He going to get that to happen in our lives? He's going to have questions come up inside of you. He's trying to create holy curiosity inside of us. So He's going to have raise questions in us. And some of those questions are going to really nag at us and really work at us. And some of those questions are even going to cause us to wonder, should I just blow out the flame of faith and give up? John walks out of there that day. Is he alive? Is he dead? Was he truth? Was he a falsehood? Was he really about what's the purpose of life? What is not the purpose of life? Where is God? Who am I? What's my significance in this? I mean, all that stuff's just going through John's mind. Because those are Jesus-induced questions. And the questions that he's going to have come up in your life, and all of us are going to have these questions come sooner or later, are being raised by him, and he is the only one who can answer them. The only one who can answer them. Now, we tend to run around trying to find answers all over the place, but sooner or later we got to realize he's the only one who can answer the questions. That's why he's raising them. So that he can answer And this is what John discovered as he started getting the answers. That there was newness all around. The concept, the idea of resurrection was new. A resurrected Savior was new. A Savior who had demonstrated he could conquer death, he could conquer sin, he could conquer shame, was new. John realized he had a life now that he could live with Jesus that was new and that was fresh. He's raising those questions in you. He's trying to create in you holy curiosity so that you and I will not be satisfied to hear what Jesus has done and who He is. So that we will not be satisfied to watch Him in somebody else's life so that we will not be satisfied to stand on the outside and say, ooh, that sounds good and that looks good, so that we won't come to Easter Sunday and say, man, the music was great and the preaching was okay and it was good to see everybody and I enjoyed it and I'm going to go home, but rather we come to Easter Sunday and we say, I want to know that Jesus in a real way. I want to know him as real on Monday morning as Sunday morning." I want to know if he will walk with me through the dark times of my life and celebrate on the good times. And I want to know if he really has a purpose and a destiny for my life with him. That he really is who the Bible says he is. That life really can have meaning and purpose. I want to find where Jesus Christ is in that. And the kind of relationship I can have with him. You see, curiosity always asks questions about the subject of its love. About the object of its love. Those of you that are married, or you're hoping to get married, and you got somebody on the, on the radar screen there, what do you do when you start moving in that direction? You start asking questions about the object of your love. What will make them happy? What will please them? You know, do they like... This, do they like that? What kind of experiences do they enjoy, etc.? So we start asking all kinds of questions. When you become a parent, what do you do? You begin to study your child because you've got curiosity about this new life that's in your life. And and, and what makes them happy? And how can you get into their mind? And, you know, etc., etc., etc. Curiosity always marries itself in love, to find out about the object of its love. And you see, when we get curious about Jesus, when that holy curiosity starts inside of us, he becomes the object of our love. And we keep asking the questions, and we keep probing. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for this day that we celebrate your resurrection Lord thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ thank you Jesus that you want to birth within us a holy curiosity for you that compels us like John and Peter we have got to go in we got to see the evidence we got to experience you and we got to know you Lord help us to run after you to have that curiosity Lord that will grow a love in us for you, Jesus. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, for you, those of you that are in this room and for those of you that are, are joining us through social media, through the radio, may I invite all of us that if you want to come into a relationship with Jesus, to say to Him this day, Jesus, I want that holy curiosity. I don't want to just hear about you. Look at you from a distance or hear about you from somebody else. Jesus, I want to know you. I want to follow you. Lord, thank you. We bless you. And now, Jesus, our curiosity about you takes us to the place of celebrating you and worshiping you. In your name, amen. Let's stand together and let's worship the Lord.